0: Every time an investor buys a rental property, they need a depreciation schedule. You're listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax
1: professionals. Welcome to episode 208 of Tax Talks. This is Heider Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. How do you depreciate assets? within an SMSF. The Instant Asset Writer, for example, only applies to business assets, so it is not available to SMSF assets. But what else is there for an SMSF when it comes to depreciation? Scott Brunson is the General Manager of Depreciator and kindly agreed to tell you more. there is a difference between depreciation for passive investors and SMSF. Hence, it doesn't matter whether the property sits within an SMSF or outside of an SMSF, as long as it's not a business asset, the depreciation is exactly the same. Do you agree?
0: From our perspective, there really isn't much difference whether a property is owned by an individual or owned by a self-managed super fund.
1: The only distinction that matters is whether it's a business asset or whether it's a passive investment. That's the only distinction that matters because there are different depreciation methods allowed in the Tax Act for business assets
0: or passive investment. But also when the changes came through in 2017, Mm -hmm. when they changed the, uh, the treatment of assets, they only affected residential property. They did not affect commercial property. And they affected residential property owned by individuals and self-managed super funds. So from the ATO's perspective, individuals owning residential property and self-managed super funds owning, individual prop, uh, owning residential property were treated in the same way.
1: The depreciation routes never distinguish between an SMSF property or something that is outside of an SMSF. There's always just the big distinction between business or non-business, and then, of course, whether it's residential or commercial. Yeah, that's
0: right. So there's a distinction if individuals or self-managed super funds own commercial property because commercial property wasn't affected at all by the changes. So if an individual owns, you know, purchases a second-hand house, they can't claim depreciation now on the assets just on the building. But if that individual purchases a factory, a small factory, then they can depreciate the assets in the factory. So... In that perspective, the individuals in the self-managed super funds are, are, are treated identically. That was the thing that caused some changes in buying behaviour of properties when it first came through. What we found was that a lot of individuals and certainly self-managed super funds, when the changes came through, they were gravitating toward purchasing commercial property as opposed to residential property. So we saw a little bit of a boom you know, in the 12 months after the changes with individuals and self-managed super funds buying small office tenancies and small factories to capitalise on the fact that they weren't affected by the changes. Yes, but it
1: could also be that the investors still bought residential properties, but because of misinformation, they thought that it's not worth getting a depreciation schedule anymore because Division 40 fell out of the
0: window. Yeah, there certainly could be, and there was a little bit of a panic overreaction from a lot of accountants when the changes first went through. You know, we had accountants calling us up or well, when they were first announced, we had accountants calling us up saying, gee, this is really bad for you guys. And we would say, well, it's not really because they just automatically thought that depreci- it was all over for depreciation. And to be fair, I think accountants heard stuff in the first few days when there was very little detail around the changes. And it wasn't for some months before there was a lot of detail, before these changes were were fleshed out. And by then, a lot of accountants had moved on to thinking about other things. So what was left in their heads and in the heads of some of their clients, was that depreciation, certainly on second-hand properties, wasn't really worth thinking about anymore. So we had to go through a bit of an education campaign with accountants and say to them, look, yes, there were changes. They only affected these sort of properties owned by these sort of entities and that there is still lots of depreciation available for your clients to claim. We made a video, we commissioned some some papers, we sent those out to accountants. So it took us, gosh, at least six months to turn around the perception that depreciation really wasn't worth doing anymore. And we worked hard at doing that. And we called up lots of accountants and we explained it to them when we, we, as I said, we produced this video and sent that out to them. And we eventually managed to get them to understand that there's still lots of depreciation to be claimed in lots of uh, residential, you know, secondhand residential properties.
1: are four depreciations still available to SMSFs and to passive investors. But please correct me if I'm wrong. There's division 43 for the structure at 2.5% usually. Then there's division 40 as long as you bought it. And then I think there's also the $300 immediate deduction. And there's the $1,000 low value pool. I think those four depreciations are available to passive investors and SMSFs.
0: Is that right? So backing up a few steps, so the changes only affect secondhand residential property. So first of all, brand new property was not affected at all. You're talking about the changes to division forty. Yes, changes to division 40. So so brand new property was not affected at all. And we, we do a lot of houses and a lot of a lot of brand new apartments. So they weren't affected. So anybody that buys a brand new property, they can still depreciate the building and they can just still depreciate the assets. So there's no change at all there. And they even introduced a six-month window. And what that meant was that if an apartment had been completed and the developer perhaps put a tenant in you know, to make a bit of money while they're waiting for sale or they might have put a tenant in to make the sale more attractive, if that tenant has been in for less than six months and an investor comes along and buys that apartment, they can still depreciate assets. So absolutely no change at all. And even backing up a few steps, the reason these changes came in is that what was happening was, let's say there was a house built 15 years ago and it was built 15 years ago and an investor bought it and they started to depreciate the building at 2.5% and they depreciated the oven and they owned the property for four or five years and they depreciated a lot of the oven, and then they sold that property to a second investor.
1: Yes, and they used the diminishing value, so basically got most of the um, depreciation through in the first four years, and then they
0: sold it. Yeah, exactly. So they might have claimed 80% of the value of that oven in the first four years or something, and then they sold that property to another investor, and that investor started to depreciate that oven again, and they would not have started depreciating it from a written down value. They would have, you know, had it revalued and it would have lost a few hundred dollars, but they started to depreciate that oven again. So they depreciated it for four or five years and then they sold the property to a third investor and the third investor came along and they started to depreciate the oven.
1: And so everybody used the diminishing value to depreciate their own, but at the start when they came in, they would have assumed that everybody else
0: used the prime cost method. Nobody knows what a previous owner may or may not have done. So it didn't matter. But people would have that oven valued you know, generously and they'd start to depreciate it. And then owner three would have it revalued generously and start to depreciate it. So what was happening was the same asset was being depreciated over and over and over again. And Treasury clearly thought that was a little bit too generous to everybody. So what they said was that, From that date in 2017, secondhand assets could not be depreciated. So when a person buys a secondhand property now, if if somebody buys a 10-year-old property now, they can still depreciate the building at 2.5% because that building's got another 30 years left to run, but they cannot depreciate the oven or the carpet or or the cooktop or the air conditioning or the curtains and blinds. They can't claim that depreciation. What they can do is store up that unclaimed depreciation and then when the property is sold, that unclaimed depreciation is treated as a capital loss. So we very quickly introduced a product called a deferred depreciation schedule. So our deferred depreciation schedule accommodates those changes and it says to clients, look, Here's what you claim every year on the building. Here's what you would have been able to claim on the assets. And then when they sell the property, their accountant just adds up that deferred depreciation. So they do get the benefit. It's just delayed until they sell the property.
1: So let's say there is an oven that you assess of still being worth $100. They can't depreciate it. When they then sell, then... The um, investor basically claims a capital loss of $100 on that oven. Yes,
0: yes, yeah. So so what it does is it reduces their capital gains tax on that property. That's the simplest way to explain it, and that's how we explain it to um, people that call up. And we're very upfront. If people have just bought a second-hand property and it's 10 years old, we'll say, well, you know, we think you'll be able to claim $2,400 every year on the building, the depreciation on the assets – we'll put it in the schedule, you'll claim that when you sell the property. And people understand that and accountants now understand that. And people say, oh, well, you know, $2,400 per year, that's still a good tax deduction, it's still worth doing.
1: Yeah, $300 immediate write-off a
0: lot. It's built into our software. Everybody uses it. But with a deferred depreciation schedule, of course, that is a second-hand asset. People don't get to claim that. Again, that's something that's deferred until until the property's sold. But certainly with with a brand-new property, when we do a brand-new property, if there's any asset under $300, that's written off immediately. That could be a range hood. Smoke detectors, doorbell, I'm thinking of assets worth under $300 that will be written off immediately, an exhaust fan in a bathroom or a laundry. So those items are written off.
1: For the $300 depreciation, you need to have acquired the asset. That $300 only applies to brand new assets or also to used assets?
0: It applies to any asset. I mean, any asset that we assess that is worth under $300 can be treated in that way. But people can only claim that depreciation now if they buy a brand-new property. If they buy a second-hand property, they don't get to claim that those under $300 assets. That deferred claim just sits there until they sell the property. So it's still recorded in the depreciation schedule.
1: Yes, okay, but if they buy a brand-new range hood under $300, then they can write it off immediately. They don't have to write it off over the effective life through Division 40, they can write it off
0: immediately. When we do a deferred depreciation schedule, another thing that's a little bit different about us compared with other depreciation schedule providers, we update people's schedules indefinitely free of charge. What that means is if we've done a deferred depreciation schedule or any sort of depreciation schedule for somebody and next month they they need to buy a new oven or a a range hood or a a hot water heater or whatever, we add it to the schedule and we don't charge to do that. So if we've done a schedule on a 10-year-old property and all of the secondhand assets are deferred and that client today needs to put in a new range hood for $250, we add that to the schedule and they just claim that. You know immediately you know on their next tax return if they need to put a second hand oven I mean a brand new oven in the property for for $700 we add that $700 oven to the depreciation schedule and they start to depreciate that oven because it's brand new so the rules were all about stopping people from claiming depreciation on second hand items anything brand new that a client puts into a property they can depreciate that thing.
1: The $300 depreciation and the $1,000 low-value pool depreciation, do they first have to pass through the routes for Division 40 before they can be depreciated or do those two routes stand alone?
0: Those two rules, the under $300 write-off and the low-value pool, they are just different ways of treating assets. All it means is an asset That's worth under $300 can be written off immediately. An asset worth between $300 and $1,000 goes into the low value pool. In the first year, it's 18.75%. And then every year after that, it's 37.5%. An asset over $1,000 depreciates according to its effective life. And then when it falls below $1,000, it can enter the low value pool. So those things aren't mutually exclusive. They're just different ways of treating assets. And their ways of claiming depreciation on assets fairly quickly. So under $300 gets smacked immediately. Between $300 and $1,000 goes into the low value pool, which depreciates things fairly quickly. Items over $1,000 depreciate according to their effective life and then they can drop into the pool when they fall below a $1,000. So, so they're not mutually exclusive, these things. They're just different ways to treat assets of different values.
1: Do you wish that the 30000 instant asset write-off comes in for... Passive investors? No, I
0: don't think so. I think the under we're talking about um commercial property, the instant asset write-off. I don't think there's a, a need for that to come into residential property. I, I think the depreciation for residential property is already fairly generous. You know, that instant asset write-off doesn't affect building, it only affects assets. The average residential rental property might have a dozen or fifteen assets. And I think the fact that there is the under-three hundred dollar write-off. There is the low value pool, there is the diminishing value method. What it enables investors to do is claim a lot of the depreciation on the assets, you know, maybe 70 or 80% of the depreciation on the assets in the first four or five years. So I think it's already a fairly generous, you know, asset depreciation regime for residential property.
1: Mentioned the diminishing value. I can imagine most of your clients use the diminishing value, correct?
0: Yeah, and everybody that produces a depreciation schedule is supposed to provide both methods. Ah, yes, of course. Not everybody does, and I've seen some depreciation schedules that don't, but we all need to provide the diminishing value and the prime cost method and present those as an option. Because if we were to just provide one method of depreciation, we would, in effect, be giving tax advice because we would be saying to people, we think this is the one that suits you, you should use it. So we present both. You know, 99.9% of people would use diminishing value. The only people who would use prime cost would be people who, for whatever reason, want to slow depreciation down. They want to even it out as opposed to claiming more depreciation in the early years. Most mums and dads, you know, who invest in residential property, The time when they are under most pressure is in the first couple of years after purchasing that property. It's been a a big deal for them. They've got, you know, they might've gone for two months without getting a tenant. They're sort of struggling and they want benefits in the early years. And the diminishing value method does provide them with those benefits in the early years when their holding costs are greater. Further down the track, rents might be higher and there might be less pressure on them with that property. But certainly in the early three, four years, they want those benefits. And that's what diminishing value method gives them.
1: Do you usually use the commissioner's effective life?
0: Yes. You are able to vary the effective life. You know, the effective life is something that uh, is something the taxpayers can vary. You would need to have a genuine reason to vary that effective life. So so let's say for argument's sake, you're an investor and you own a property in a mining town. And for some strange reason, you've carpeted that property and you rent the property out to miners. I'm just making this up. You rent the property out to miners who wear their boots in the house. A carpet has an effective life of 10 years. You may argue as a taxpayer that you think given the location of the property, given what is the sort of tenants you're getting, the way it's been treated, that 10 years is too long as an effective life on that carpet. So you may want to, you know, change that. We follow the effective lives. I think the effective lives are fine. I think, you know, 10 years for carpet is fine and 12 years for an oven. I think all those effective lives, you know, to me make sense. And of course, with the diminishing value method, you know, the depreciation is stacked up the front anyway. On those items. So it's not as if it's spread out over 10 years.
1: Sorry, I have another question for you. And that is in the emails we exchanged beforehand, Scott, there is a talk about when a property is purchased and when there is a change of use. Can you elaborate on what that is? I've never thought about the issue of a change of use.
0: Yeah, so I think what we should do is talk briefly about, because this is all tied to the changes that came through in 2017. It's to do with the treatment of of secondhand assets. So so when the changes came through in 2017, in mid-2017, and then then when they became legislation later, it was all to do with preventing people from depreciating secondhand assets in residential property. Didn't affect commercial property at all. Didn't affect properties owned by businesses. It affected properties owned by by individuals and self managed super funds, and those properties had to be residential. So that's the first thing. So it affected the depreciation on the assets and the rule was that if you purchase a property after the 9th of May 2017 and the property is second-hand, you cannot depreciate the secondhand assets in that property. So that was really clear and everybody kind of got that and understood it and it wasn't until a few months down the track where there were some more details that came out and what they said then was that if you've lived in your home so so let's say you bought a house 5 years ago and you lived in it and it was your home so you purchased the property you exchanged contracts on the property before the 9th of May 2017 you you owned it you know 3 years before that so you're you're sort of clear of that date and then let's say you decide to rent that property out today even though you bought the property before the 9th of May 2017, if you start to rent that property out after 1 July 17, the assets need to be deferred. And a lot of people, a lot of accountants miss that second date. And we have conversations, well, Steve has conversations almost daily with accountants saying, well, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I've just got this depreciation schedule for my client. They bought that property five years ago. They bought that property well before those changes came through. How come they've got a deferred depreciation schedule? How come the assets are deferred? You guys have made a mistake. The fact is that they started to rent out that property after 1 July 2017, so they need to defer those assets. So when we talk about a change of use, that property has changed from being used for personal purposes. It's now become... An investment property and because it became an investment property after 1 July 2017 the depreciation on those assets now needs to be deferred so that's tripped up a few people and it's also tripped up people with holiday houses if people have a holiday house and they might have owned it for, you know, five or six years or 10 years, and they've claimed depreciation on the building, and, you know, that's not effective. They, they keep claiming that. If they use that holiday house themselves for personal purposes, they can now no longer claim the assets. The depreciation on the those assets needs to be deferred. So if they've done that after the 1st of the 7th, 2017, Then they need to be wary of the fact that they really should be deferring the depreciation on those assets.
1: So they're basically grandfathering roots and these grandfathering roots break the moment you have personal use of that asset.
0: Yeah, well that applies to the holiday house scenario but, but in terms of people buying the property that's not really a grandfathering thing if people bought the property five years ago and started to rent it out today they are affected by those changes and that's probably the one that is confusing most accountants, that particular second date.
1: But Scott, let's say they were renting out the property in July 17 then in 18 they took the let's say it's a holiday house they took the holiday house off the market just used it privately and then in 19 rented it out again then in 19 they couldn't depreciate those that's correct those old equipments anymore because by having private use after July 17 they basically broke the grandfathering
0: rules yes they've broken the you know the chain or the link so they've got to defer the depreciation on those on those assets. But anything they purchase brand new, as as I said earlier, anything they purchase brand new for that property, they can depreciate the cost of those items. And we just add those to the schedules.
1: And I like it that you talk of deferring depreciation. So rather than losing depreciation, it's just deferred. I like that because it highlights the fact that you still get something and that is a capital loss.
0: A lot of people, when they buy a rental property, they have a plan. They don't, they don't envisage holding it You know, and passing it down to their children. A lot of people that we talk to, they find an opportunity, they think it's going to be good. They might hold it, you know, they might plan to hold it for four or five years and then offload it. They'll buy when a market is in a bit of a slump. There's people at the moment, we've got investors in the moment looking in Sydney because prices are down in Sydney relative to where they were, you know, 18 months ago. So there are people that buy properties in a bit of a slump. They find an opportunity they will buy the property, they'll add value to it, and they'll look at turning it over in three, four, five years' time. So those people don't see that depreciation as being lost. They do see that benefit as just being held off for a little while.
1: Welcome back. So whether an asset sits inside or outside of an SMSF doesn't usually affect depreciation apart from division 40. The depreciation options available depend on many other factors as well, especially whether the asset is a business asset or not. So this was my talk with Scott about SMSF depreciation, but now let's go back to the very start. Before we actually got to talk about depreciation I called out Scott and interrogated him about quite a few other things which I wanted to share with you. I was very pleasantly surprised when I realized that Depreciator is integrated with Class.
0: Yeah, we did that about, gosh, it must be about four years ago now, and Class approached us because they wanted to be able to have a depreciation option in the software. So, and we had done work for Count Financial for about 15 years, and there was some relationship between class and count. So we were a natural fit. And it took a fair while to get the integration working, but it's fabulous and it works really well.
1: But that's quite unusual that the uh, accounting software approaches an app for integration, correct?
0: Well, we're not really an app. I mean, we're we're a provider.
1: You're more a software provider.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, we certainly use software and we developed our own software to do what we do. But in one sense, we're a sort of an old-fashioned business because a lot of the time, what we need to do to do our job is send a quantity surveyor into a property to inspect the property and measure it up and gather all the information. So on the one hand, we are an on the ground business with people actually driving around doing the work. But we do have fairly sophisticated software that we built ourselves. And Class needed somebody that was good at that end of the business but could also service their people around Australia in terms of being able to send people out to properties to inspect those properties.
1: Was the integration with Class relatively tedious because you were one of the first providers to integrate with Class?
0: They have other providers that provide all sorts of different related accounting products. I think any integration is tedious, let's face it. Anytime two companies need to integrate their systems and software, it's desperately tedious. And it did involve a lot of testing, lots of trials and a lot of work. But when it all went through, we're amazed at how smooth the whole system is. So the way it works is people that use Class, accountants that use Class, they can order or make an inquiry about a depreciation schedule via the software. We get the property info into our system, and a lot of the data is already pre-populated that comes from the accountant, we then work out whether it's worth doing a depreciation schedule on that property. And if it is, we proceed and we do it. And then when we've done the depreciation schedule, it's sent back as a class CSV, and that only takes a couple of clicks to upload into the software. So it's a very, very Simple system that we've built, but there was a lot of tedium in arriving at that simplicity. So, the
1: accountant needs to upload a CSV file. You don't feed the information directly into that class account.
0: Now, the accountant still needs to upload it, but it really is only a couple of clicks.
1: And I can imagine the reason you did that was so that the accountant has full control of what's happening with the account.
0: Yes, because I think it's important that an accountant sees what they're about to put into somebody's into somebody's account. So yeah, so they they are able to review it and then they just upload it with a couple of clicks.
1: Please tell me how did depreciator actually start?
0: Well it was about 17 years ago and a friend of mine called Hans Dean had an idea to start a business doing depreciation schedules. So we met up and I had no idea what he was talking about. So I had to get him to explain it to me a couple of times. And I wasn't convinced that there was a business in it. He was. He felt that there were a lot of property investors out there needing depreciation schedules. And we started the business and it started slowly. And then we took on investors. Then we took on Count Financial as our first major affiliate. And we just boomed from there. The name we came up with the name about 16 years ago. That was a stroke of genius, coming up with the name Depreciator, and uh, that was me. I'm going to I'm going to take ownership of that, that one. That is a
1: good URL. You wouldn't get that anymore now.
0: No, 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 no. That's right. And, and I know that our competitors uh, were annoyed because they would get people calling them up and asking for a depreciator, and they would have to say no. What you want is a depreciation schedule. So we became sort of the the generic term for depreciation schedules. And at the time when we started, it was a time when lots of mums and dads were getting into property investing, you know, around 2000, 2001, and there was a bit of a boom. And there were lots of people doing seminars, and they were talking about depreciation as a fabulous tax deduction. And we realised that there weren't really many people out there Able to service those mums and dads buying rental properties and being able to provide depreciation schedules because depreciation was kind of kind of more a business thing. It it wasn't really, there weren't really companies set up to deal with mums and dads buying a, a single rental property. So that's where we positioned ourselves as a company that could help mums and dads access depreciation. And we chose to market ourselves through accountants. We don't advertise, we don't do expos, we don't do radio ads, we don't do any of that sort of nonsense. Most of our work comes to us from accountants.
1: Were you and Hans Dean, were you surveyors?
0: No, it was interesting. Hans Hans had a building company and he had quantity surveyors on staff and my background was marketing. So that was the fit. He brought to the table his knowledge of construction and uh, quantity surveyors And I brought to the table some marketing expertise. So it was a nice melding of our our respective skills.
1: That is interesting because I think a lot of other depreciation schedules providers were quantity surveyors when they started, which of course also gives you a, a good perspective.
0: I think also that quantity surveyors, God love them, they're fabulous at looking at plans. They're great at measuring up buildings. Sometimes they're not fabulous at explaining what they do to clients and to accountants. So we have a network of quantity surveyors. We've got 30 or 40 of them, and they're terrific at what they do, but they're not always great at dealing with clients. And I think that's where our skill is. Uh, Hans and I are good at talking to accountants, and we're good at talking to clients and mums and dads and running a business. So we let the quantity surveyors do what they're good at and what they're comfortable at and we take care of the other stuff. And the interesting thing also is that quantity surveyors aren't trained in tax. It's not part of what they learn to do when they go to university. They'll do a a degree in construction management, but they won't necessarily know much about tax. And there are lots of quantity surveyors out there who don't do depreciation schedules at all. They don't want to do it. They don't want to learn the tax stuff. They're not at all interested. So We use them for what they're good at and what they're comfortable at doing, which is measuring buildings and assessing the historical construction cost of buildings and valuing assets. And then, in a way, we're the keepers of the tax knowledge. So we apply the tax rules to to what they come back with.
1: Do you think there are big changes coming to the industry or do you think there's a bit of level road ahead?
0: Look, I think that we all went through some changes in um, in late 2017.
1: With Division 40. So the biggest challenge to providers of depreciation schedules is basically the legislative changes that are coming through in a fairly regular trickle
0: of change. Yeah, well, there are fiddles on the edges often and they tend to be insignificant. There was a major fiddle in 2017 with, with the treatment of assets in secondhand properties. And that caused a bit of a hiccup. And what we did was we jumped on it very quickly and we developed a new product called a deferred depreciation schedule. And we rolled that out, you know, within a month or two that took into account the changes. So we were the first people sort, of, you know, to, to roll out something that accommodated the changes. From our business, we depend upon transactions. So we've had a bit of a slow period as everybody in our industry has. And what affects us isn't the value of property. The fact that property in um, Sydney and Melbourne has had a bit of a slide in value is incidental to us. What we depend upon is investors purchasing property. We depend upon transactions and turnover of property. And that's certainly slowed down. So over the last couple of years, Investors have found it difficult to borrow funds to buy property, so there's been fewer investors buying property and that's affected us and it's affected every company in our industry.
1: Yes, of course, because the depreciation schedule you prepare basically lasts for the lifetime of the
0: property. It does. And every time an investor buys a rental property, they need a depreciation schedule. So if investors are struggling to buy property, which they have been over the last couple of years there are fewer depreciation schedules being ordered. So that has affected our business, but we're lucky that we have a very scalable business. We were able to scale back our business with no damage to the business. And we have about 30 or 40 people around Australia. So as soon as things turn around, and it looks like they are starting to turn around, we can scale up again and capitalize on the next boom, which will inevitably come in the next couple of years because that's what booms do.
1: quantity surveyors that you have in your portfolio, they are contractors. So you just hire them when there is a property to survey.
0: Yeah, that's right. Some of them are on staff and we plug the holes with contractors. And they're people that do understand tax and they're people that some of them have worked with us for 15 or 16 years.
1: Yes, but that makes it very scalable for you. You don't have them on your payroll, hence you can increase or decrease the engagement.
0: And accountants would also appreciate that we're an incredibly seasonal business. We start to get busy around about Anzac Day at the end of April. We're busy in May, we're busy in June. We have a couple of quiet weeks in July, then it ramps up again till the end of October. How is that? It's purely driven by the tax tax year. So what happens is we have a lot of work that comes in in May and June and they tend to be um, clients, mums and dads invariably, who know about depreciation. They either know because they've got other rental properties or they know because people have told them about depreciation, but they come to us in May and June and they are keen to pay for their depreciation schedule before June 30 because, of course, the you know our fee is tax deductible. So they might have bought that property eight months ago, but they don't order it until May and June. So we are very, very busy in May and June is insanely busy and that's just people ordering depreciation schedules and putting money down. On a depreciation schedule. And what happens then is, after June 30, it's like a tap being turned off for a week or so. And then people start to go and see their accountants, and they go and see their accountants, and they've got their group certificates and they make an appointment, and they see their accountant in the third week of July or the end of July, and they sit down and say, Oh, look, I didn't tell you, but last October I bought this rental property. And the accountant says, Oh, for goodness sake, well, what you need is a depreciation schedule. So I'm gonna get these people to call you and have a talk about it. And then the accountant sends the client's details to us via our online link and we call the client up and we often have to explain what depreciation is. They'll ask us lots of questions they don't wanna ask their accountant because they don't pay for our time by the hour. But we'll have a long conversation with them, we'll have a chat about what depreciation is, we'll look at the property online, we'll tell them how much depreciation we think might be in that property and whether it's worth doing it. And then we'll proceed and do the job. So that's the second wave. So the first wave is just people up to June 30 throwing money at us and making orders. And then the second wave is people being referred by their accountants.
1: The online link that accountants use, that is via your website, correct? It's not directly through class, for example, if the property happened to sit in
0: class. So there's two separate mechanisms. If accountants are class users, they can order a depreciation schedule through class, through the software. They go to the property worksheet and they tick a button that says inquire about depreciation. So they can submit an inquiry that way. But we, of course, deal with lots of accountants that don't use class or that want depreciation schedules for properties that are not in self-managed super funds. And we provide accountants with a link and they use that link to send an inquiry to us. And what we do with those inquiries is when they come in, they pop up into an inbox in the office. We call that client within one hour of that inquiry coming through. And it's not unusual at all for us to call a client when they're still sitting in their accountant's office. A one hour response time, that's very impressive. We can boast that, we can say that we do it in one hour and it's because of the size of the business we are. And we might touch upon the size of the business in a minute, but basically, we guarantee that we'll call their client within an hour. And the first thing we say is that their accountant wanted us to have a talk with them about depreciation on their property. And then we start to ask the client questions about the property. And we'll ask what age it is and how long they've owned it for, when they started to rent it out, because all of those things have bearings on two things, they have bearings on whether the job is worth doing because some jobs are not worth doing and they also have bearings on how we tackle the job and that has a bearing on what we charge to do the job because we have we have a range of different fees depending on the information a client has and how complex the job is so we have a sliding fee scale and every single day of the week we tell clients that it's not worth doing a depreciation schedule and i think that's an important message to get across to accountants because depreciation has become a bit more complex It's still worthwhile. In most cases, there's still plenty of depreciation to claim. But because of the changes that came through, it became a little bit more difficult for an accountant to work out if it's worth a client doing a depreciation schedule. So what we say to those clients is, look, don't you bother trying to work out the viability of this. Just send the client to us and we'll work out the viability of it. We'll determine if there's sufficient depreciation in a property to justify our fee. And if there's not, we'll let the client know and the accountant know. So we don't expect accountants to be experts on depreciation. They need to be experts on so many so many things, but not depreciation. Do you
1: have a rough idea what percentage you assess as not being worth a depreciation
0: schedule? I would say, oh, perhaps one in every 50 inquiries that come through, we tell people it's really not worth it. and, and that Oh, will, okay,
1: so about
0: 2%. Yeah, and, and that will be the case if a client's bought – a pre 87 built property recently and there's been no renovations, then, then that one is, is a little bit questionable, a residential property. When jobs are sometimes borderline, what we'll do is we'll call the accountant because you know sometimes we'll say to a client, look, we think there'll be this much depreciation in the first full year and this much in the in subsequent years. And sometimes they don't know whether they should proceed or not. So we'll often call an accountant and we do this probably, you know, at least daily. And we'll say, look, we've just had a chat to your client about that inquiry you sent through. We think that we will find this much depreciation in the first part year and this much in the next full year. And this is what our fear will be. Do you think it's viable for your client for us to proceed? And sometimes I say, yep, yep, look, I've just had a quick look, I think it is worth doing. And sometimes I say, well, probably not because it looks like they're gonna sell the house next year or whatever. So, So we're guided by them
1: can i just quickly ask you about your office because i'm very intrigued by your one hour response time do you have a call center that is specifically set out just to achieve this one-hour response time, or how does it work?
0: We do, and although we call it a call centre, what it is is four or five people that sit, because we're in Sydney, our head office is in Sydney CBD, it's an open plan office. We all sit in the same big space. There are more people in tax season and fewer people out of tax season, but in the busy season we'll have four or five people on the phones answering calls, and one of those people will monitor the inquiries inbox, which is where Affiliate inquiries come into, so it'll come through as a, as an affiliate referred inquiry, and they'll just jump on that and um, call. You know, when they see the lead, they check that inbox every half hour or so, and just see what's there. So they will call as soon as they see a lead, and they'll have a discussion. So so when we say when we talk about a call centre, it's not, it's not a call centre in another country. It's four or five people in the office, and importantly, those people don't work off a script. Because every conversation about a property will take a different path. What those people do is they are sufficiently trained and they're clever enough to ask the right sort of questions of a client to work out whether it's worth doing a depreciation schedule. And they're also equipped to answer questions because lots of clients have all sorts of questions about depreciation. And and we have a a really good ebook that's on our site that we direct people to, and that that answers lots of questions that people have about, about depreciation. So an inquiry will come through. It'll either come through you know, via the online portal from an affiliate or it'll just be a phone-in inquiry because lots of accountants just say to their clients, just call these guys up and have a chat to them. So there'll be a conversation. We'll get some information from the client. We'll open up an inquiry in the system and put that information into the system. We'll assess the property and work out if it's worth doing and, and if we do come up with a figure of expected depreciation, we'll put that in the notes if we can get all the information we need from the client in that phone call we'll ask them for a deposit of our fee we will also put the accountant's email address in the job but if the client sends that if the accountant sends that lead to us their details are already populated so they're already linked to that job and what that means is that during the process of that job the accountant gets a couple of auto emails telling them where it's at Telling them that the client is going ahead, telling them that the property's been inspected and the inspection's completed. So they're kept up to date along the way, as is the client. And then when the job is finished and the depreciation schedule completed, the client and the accountant are emailed the schedule at the same time. So it's an incredibly slick process that we've built. And I think the fact that we are the size we are is of benefit to us. I mean, as I said, we're a scalable business, so we scale up in tax season. And when the next East Coast property boom comes, we'll scale up for that as well.
1: How many depreciation schedules do you do? Uh, you?
0: Well, that's sort of commercially confidence. I mean, let's say it's around about 5,000. So we do a fair few of these. Obviously stacked for the four or five months of tax season. We still have a business that's similar in size to a lot of our affiliates. A lot of our affiliates have businesses where they have, you know, between 10 and 20 staff. The advantage, I think, that we have is that if an accountant has a query about a complicated property or if they have a complicated and difficult client and that happens, that accountant knows that they can call up depreciator and they can talk to me or they can talk to Steve. And because we're in the office, as I said, it's a, it's an open plan office. So when there is something that an accountant wants to have a chat about, and it might be the rules of depreciation, or it could be a particular situation with a client, or it could be a particularly tricky property. There's one on the go at the moment, which is a, a wedding venue and horse property up at Scone. So that's, that's entailed sort of quite a few conversations. But accountants know that they can call up depreciator and talk to somebody sensible and discuss a tricky situation. They don't have to wait for callback. They don't have to you know, go through eight people to get to somebody sensible. So personally, I like the size of the business. I like the fact that we are able to service people quickly and sensibly, but also the fact that we're able to scale up, you know, very quickly and readily when things take off again.
1: I just want to ask you one more question and that is about the software you use I can imagine that you custom built the software that prepares the depreciation schedules but the entire interaction with the client have you custom built an CIM system or do you have your system plugged into a standard CIM like Salesforce or HubSpot or something no else? no it's
0: all ours and we looked around at a bunch of off-the-shelf CRMs. We looked around at those 15 or 16 years ago, and we couldn't find anything that really did what we needed it to do. So we built our own, which was a significant investment in the early days, and it's still running. And, and we have somebody that looks after it. And the benefit of having your own is that when there are changes, we can accommodate them. We can just build in the changes. And we did that in 2017, but all the way along. I mean, there are were, there were a few things we're tweaking this week with the CRM. So we change stuff all the time as the business changes.
1: That's very impressive, but I think it also enables you to have very sleek processes because you don't have integration between different software systems that need to talk to each other. Having it all in one system, of course, makes the integration 100%. Yeah,
0: it does, and, you know, we talk about it all the time and we have a meeting every morning at 10 a.m. <laughs> in the office and that's that's a quick stand-up meeting. We have larger meetings, but often in those meetings, well, Steve, who's sitting beside me, he deals mostly with the affiliates. He'll suggest something that he thinks would be good for our software to do that would help him better serve the affiliates, or it could be something that the affiliates, you know, have requested or would make their lives a bit easier. And because it's our CRM and our software, we can get it built. So we'll take on board suggestions and requests from accountants and build them into the system.
1: Welcome back. In the next episode, episode 209, Rand Fishkin of SparkToro and previously Moss will talk about SEO for accountants. SEO as in search engine optimization. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.